Since it's New Year's Eve, um, we in the monastery have been receiving lots of friendly messages from people. Uh, saying Happy New Year. Uh, also myself personally, uh, it's nice to receive messages from people. Sometimes it's the only time of year that we actually communicate and family and old friends and from all around the world. Mostly, they're um, yeah, very pleasant messages to receive. But I received one recently that um, from somebody who I haven't seen them for some time. But uh, anyway, he was writing to say that that he really just didn't get the um, the message that I sent him last time. Didn't get the point of what I was saying to him. The last correspondence we shared, which was quite some time ago. He said he just didn't get it and that he was uh, finding life very frustrating. And family man, professional person, three children, wife, and all sorts of uh, challenges to deal with. And, and that my, uh, my suggested uh, Dhamma contemplation, I'd sent him a, a verse from the Dhammapada and and a little commentary on it, something I find very useful as a way of, of honoring our tradition and the scriptures and our tradition at the same time, uh, contemplating it and, and finding relevance in our daily life situation. And so I'd sent him one of these contemplations and, and the, uh, the encouragement had been to uh, look inwards, that uh, the emphasis, if we, want to, if we really want to be free from suffering, the emphasis, the priority needs to be looking inwards, not outwards. And it was a verse from the Dhammapada, verse 160, which a very very well-known, very famous teaching by the Buddha that says, we are our own true refuge. How could anybody else be our refuge? When we reach the stage of perfect self-reliance, we find a rare refuge. Uh, it's a very well-known teaching by the Buddha an encouragement to not get attached to external sources of security, looking for security, well-being, confidence, uh, and ultimately complete freedom, then the emphasis needs to be inwards. The encouragement is to seek where it is that we are attaching to things that get in the way. And so... This person was commenting uh, on my comment and saying that he didn't find it very helpful, that he's a busy man and he's got all these demands on his life and, and uh, he can't be looking for contentment within and, and letting go of his attachments when he's got all these uh, obligations. And, and so I obviously um, spent some time thinking about this. Uh, it's... Uh, 
Mm. Not the case that the Buddha gave his teachings to make people unhappy. Quite the opposite. He gave his teachings to, uh, so that people could be really, truly, profoundly, unconditionally happy. And so I consider, well, what can you, what can you say about this, this actually quite uh, regular misunderstanding of the teachings when, when it's encouraged to seek contentment, to let go of attachments, to live with equanimity with the way it is in the moment. And this is regularly misperceived as some sort of an injunction to um, abdicate all responsibility and just do nothing. When this is definitely not the case. And, so anyway, I find with these, these teachings, and, and particularly the Dhammapada, I find it uh, helpful to look at the story associated with these verses. And, and Although the scholars will tell us that uh, the stories are, are apocryphal and, and there may be evidence for that, they, in, in my view, are still very much encoded with the spirit of the teaching that the Buddha gave. And by reading them and getting the story, getting the picture it adds another dimension to the teaching. So the Buddha was pointing to where do you find real security, real safety, a sense of safety, a sense of being able to be profoundly at ease, unshakable contentment. Where do you find that? He's saying, well, you have to find it within. And the context of which this story, this verse arose, was uh, in a time when there was a uh, a young woman who had she'd been, she was married, she was, had a husband but she was very resolute about her practice and she decided she wanted to become a bhikkhuni uh, despite the fact of what he thought, uh, she wanted to be a bhikkhuni and, but uh, it wasn't possible if he was, she was married to do that without permission so she had to work on it a bit and eventually she got permission from her husband and so she went off and she became a fully ordained bhikkhuni which was very nice. I'm sure she was happy about it until she realized that she had gone forth and become a bhikkhuni under this monk, Devadatta, who uh, probably many of you will recognize. Devadatta was, was uh, not a very good fellow and uh, always bent on causing trouble in the community and in fact, trying to cause a schism and wanting to take over leading the community. And, and he was a uh, yeah, real trouble, troublemaker. And so she realized she made a big mistake. But there she was, she was ordained in this community with all these other monks and nuns and with Devadatta as a teacher. And then on top of that, she discovered she was pregnant. And, well, this is a problem. Nuns are not supposed to be pregnant. And, of course, she knew that it was, it was nothing to do with what had happened since she became a bhikkhuni. This was when she was a married woman that the pregnancy came. And um, so, but anyway, when Devadatta found out, he just threw her out. Just said, oh, disrobe, off you go. Go back to the householder's life, I, didn't want her around. But she was very resolute and very clear in her own mind that what she wanted to do to be a bhikkhuni. And she hadn't done anything against her precepts. Okay, she was pregnant with a child, but that wasn't from while well, she was a nun. And, and she said she didn't want to disrobe, and she insisted. She said, I, I made a mistake coming here anyway. I, I wanted to go forth and live with the Buddha and his disciples. So please direct me to him. So because she was resolute in her own mind and clear about what she wanted, eventually she did get what she was looking for and she was able to live with the monks and nuns under the Buddha as the teacher. However, of course, the fact that she was pregnant was a bit of an issue. 
they convened a meeting and the Buddha said, well, let's uh, sort this out. And he didn't decide to sort it out himself. He, he called in some of the, uh, the leaders of the community at the time. Uh, there was a, a female lay disciple, Wisaka, very generous, committed lay disciple, very wise woman. And also there was the, the uh, benefactor, King Persenadi, and also the very uh, devout, uh, generous lay supporter, Anattapindika. And so the Buddha had the Tera Upali uh, adjudicate at this meeting with these other three um, leaders of the lay community there. And so they investigated the situation and Visaka took the Bhikkhuni aside and, and then came back and she told the assembly she was convinced that the pregnancy came from before she was a nun. There was absolutely no blame in this, no problem, and, and that settled it. And so she was allowed to stay in the community. And then when the son was born, he was named Kumara Kasapa and was adopted by King Pasenadi. So then that was nice. You know, she carried on with her practice as Bhikkhuni, and, and he grew up with King Pasenadi as his uh, adopted father. Until at the age of seven... Uh, the scriptures tell us he found out that his mother was Bhikkhuni and faith arose in his mind and he decided he wanted to go forth as well. And this is something that seems to happen throughout the scriptures that seven, seven years old is the earliest that you seem to get anybody going forth and, um, and doing well in the practice. Uh, it seems to also incidentally uh, correlate with what uh, child development theorists would tell us is when the sense of differentiation has taken place and the child has a sufficiently well-established self-structure uh, to be able to see themselves as an individual and presumably begin the process of transcending the unfortunate condition of believing in our ego existence. So anyway, this um, Kumara Kasapa went forth as a Samanera, as a novice monk and under the Buddha, and the Buddha gave him a meditation object and he went off to the forest, practiced diligently, and he became an arahant at the age of seven. And, however, he stayed in the forest for another 12 years. Uh, and so 12 years later, he comes out of the forest, and his mother's still there living as a bhikkhuni, but she's not so happy now because she's uh, missing her son. And she's been missing her son for 12 years. She hasn't seen him for 12 years. And, in fact, she's wandering around following him wherever he goes. Uh, there's this arahant monk who's probably about 20 years old now, and, um, and his mother's following around everywhere, crying all over the place, weeping. And, and this, isn't, you know, this is a bit unfortunate because, of course, the Arahant monk would like his mother to be perfectly happy, but she certainly wasn't. She was very distressed. So what to do about it? And so he used his wisdom to assess the situation and, and out of compassion, not out of cruelty, he spoke very firmly to his mother. Uh, of course, those who were listening decided that it was rather cruel, and even the mother decided that that was very cruel and, and unfortunate that her beloved son would talk to her like that. After all that, uh, all the affection that she's had for him, and she um, has done her no good at all. In fact, the, what uh, her son, uh, the um, Kumara Kasapa, pointed out to her, she says, you know, it's about time, you know, living as a bhikkhuni, it's about time she just let go of all these pointless attachments. You know, it's time to just shape up or ship out. Well, I don't think he would have used that expression, but... You know, basically, you know, get on with practice, woman, and let go of your attachments. And Anyway, uh, fortunately, uh, the wisdom was rightly judged, and it did the trick. And the mother, reflecting on the fact that all her so-called fondness for her son had amounted to, had been poisoned with attachment. 
and the so-called love was not pure love at all, but was attachment. And had done her no good. Here she was. He was free. He was contented, but she certainly wasn't. But she got the message there and then. She got the message and arrived at full realization. Became also became an arahant bhikkhuni. So this was the context of the verse that the Buddha gave, and and so the monks were sitting around and talking with the Buddha about this and saying how it's just as well that she left Devadatta that that no hope monk because if she'd stayed with him and followed what he'd said, she would have just gone back and probably wouldn't have um, realized the truth that she has now. And the Buddha said, yes, indeed, this is the case. And, uh, and, and commenting on her finding the refuge within herself, that this is what's needed, that if we want to really find security, if we really want to realize the goal of practice, we do need to find that surety, that certainty within ourselves. She wasn't put off by her husband. She wasn't put off by Devadatta and presumably the other bhikkhunis who were telling her to disrobe and leave. She wasn't put off by the frustration and disappointment of, uh, that she was facing along the way. And fortunately, the commitment to practice directed her attention to the point where she was able to actually see. So this, is, this is the point that clear seeing is obstructed. This is, the, this is what I'm doing she saw for herself, this is what I'm doing that is creating the suffering in the moment. So this is what all the, Buddha was, all the Buddha's teachings are pointing to. And, and when, when we talk about letting go uh, or acceptance of the way things are, it's not, it's not merely a philosophical position that we take and then try and project onto life. But it's, it's, it's aimed at directing our attention to that point, to that place where we're doing something that's obstructing reality. The moment before that bhikkhuni was enlightened and the moment after, it's just one moment, but profoundly different. And what changed, what was different before to what, how things were after was the way she was relating to her experience. So my friend who wrote to me the other day said, I just don't see the point of your emphasis on talking about the way I'm relating to experiences, my perception of experience, as opposed to focusing on experiences. Well, this is the reason why. That if we don't, if we're not really mindful, if we're not really present for our experience in the moment, then we can be relating to it in a way that's creating stress. Now, presumably that bhikkhuni, she didn't fly up into the air and flap her wings and have a kind of momentous enlightenment experience. She was probably just sitting there or walking there, just one moment to the next, something shifted. Externally, nothing shifted. But internally, something shifted. And what shifted, that's what we need to see. That's what we're encouraged to look at. What is it that we're doing that makes a difference? Now, it's also, this is not just something that we uh, have to do a lot of formal meditation to understand in daily life practice. Uh, one of my favorite examples that as many of you have heard me talk about many times before is you're driving a car when you're driving. How do we, how do we hold the steering wheel? You can't just sit there and just say, well, whatever, you know, love and light and let the car you know, drive itself. And maybe one day that might happen, 
but not yet. At the moment, you have to have your hands on the steering wheel. You have to hold. We have to hold, but it's how we hold. We have to hold our experience, but it's how we hold. If we hold too tightly, well, we get tension and we get stressed and then we, then we have an unpleasant experience. What's the difference between having an unpleasant experience driving the car up to the mountains in Scotland or something rather? What's the difference between that beautiful journey and having a painful hunched shoulders experience is how we hold. Or also, like recently, well, early this year, you, know, you will have observed we replaced the conservatory here on the side of the Dummer Hall. It was uh, falling apart. Well, we didn't replace it, actually. Uh, we got some professional builders um, to come and do the job. But while the work was being done, we took the opportunity to address the uh, problem with the stonework. When the building was done, the stonework was not dressed properly. It was done by some people who didn't, <laughs> didn't have a huge amount of skill in the stoneworking department. So they were really pretty rough. Not rough as guts, actually, as we would say in New Zealand. Really rough as guts. And, and so we decided, you know, it's time to do this. The conservatory's down before the professionals come in and let's address the stonework. And so we, we had a friend who's a very skilled stoneworker up in Scotland, Martin Riley, some of you know, Martin came down and instructed some of the young monks here how to do the tooling on the stonework. And, and it's an art. It's an art how you hold the chisel, the stone chisel. You've got the bolster in one hand and you're boom, 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 you're banging the chisel. But how you hold this has a profound effect on the, uh, a profound influence on the effect of what you're doing. You go and look at the beautiful stonework they've done out there. Now, if you hold it too tightly, the chisel slips. Not only that, but also what happens every time you bang the chisel, the reverberation of the impact shoots up your arm, and if you do it for very long, you can end up with damaged joints. But if you hold it too loosely, well, of course, the chisel falls out and lands on the ground. So you do that for a while. You drop the chisel a few times. You hurt yourself a few times until eventually you get it around the and you're there, you can be chiselling away from you've got this beautiful tooled stonework. Go out and have a look at it. It's very nice. It's a lovely job. Or playing the musical instrument. I haven't played one for 30 or 40 years, <laughs> but I do remember, in fact, even more than that a year, long time ago anyway, I used to play the violin. How you hold the violin. I can still remember how you, how you hold the bow, the, the way where your wrist is when you're holding the bow determines the music. You don't have to put too much, you don't have to make too much of an adjustment before you get a very, very different sound. So it's how we hold the instrument, how we hold the tool, how we hold our meditation object. Many of us have been meditating for years and presumably have, have, have realized by now if we hold the meditation object too tightly, if we try too hard, that doesn't work. We get headache. You come up for meditation, your eyes are all blurry. You can't see where you're going. You've been holding it too tightly and you get a pain in the neck and ruin your back. You're not, you lose mindfulness of the whole body and you sit in bad posture and instead of mindfully enduring through painful sensation of the body, you actually heedlessly endure, endure too far for too long and you hurt yourself and damage yourself. End up having a cartilage operation, holding the meditation object too tightly. Hold it too loosely, and of course you're thinking about whatever. 
food or summer or going away or whatever comes into your mind. The mind is all over the place and there's not much point in that. You just may as well go and have a nice warm bath and listen to some music. You call it relaxation. There's certainly not meditation. Put some nice, some nice oils in the water and have a candle burning and just totally chill. Very nice. But it's not going to lead to much insight. Probably lead to some good relaxation, and that's definitely got its place. I think a little aromatherapy is called for at times. But that's not really holding the meditation object in a way that can take us deeper and see our experience of life from a different perspective. For that, we need to hold the meditation object just rightly. And so this is what we're talking about. We say learning how to let go or learning how to, learning how to accept the way things are as I say, it's not a philosophical position you know, that we then apply to life, but it's trying to it's giving a suggestion so that it, it changes our experience from being miserable to being one that we can apply investigation and learn from. The everyday common and garden variety experience or the really intense and difficult experiences. If we've prepared ourselves as one dear friend used to tell me, it's all in the preparation. It's all in the preparation. And that is so true. The cooking, I mean, the cooking, once you get in the oven, well, that's one thing, you know, but then you sit back and have a cup of tea. But the preparation is, uh, we're preparing for building work. Or when we repainted this, this dummer hall early this year, painting it was, was not much problem really but the preparation the huge amount of preparation had to cover all the floor with hardwood and had to get the scaffolding in and and all the washing everything and clearing out a huge amount of preparation well so it is with our practice that that with the difficulties of life you know the, the, some very intense moments of suffering perhaps through the last year 2010 some of you have been through some intense moments of, of suffering how do we meet it? Have we prepared ourselves? So that's what so much of our teaching and the training and the words and the, the reading is about, is, is prepare ourselves so that when we, when, we, when we are met with an experience, which is potentially a wonderful opportunity for deepening and really learning how to let go and survive something that's challenging us, even to the point of making us feel like we're challenged, being challenged with death, then are we there to meet it in a way where we've got the right quality of attention? Holding it just that right. Well, this takes practice, and this is so. This is what uh, I was trying to suggest to my friend when I wrote to him about you know, looking inwards to see. It's not. It's not taking a fixed position. No. Acceptance of the way things are is not a philosophy that we're then supposed to, you know, hold on to. The Buddha also talked about zeal, determination, enthusiasm. Like later on this evening, we're we will have a forgiveness and aspiration ceremony. Mm. The first part of the ceremony, uh, forgiveness, is accepting the way things are. 2010 has passed, and we made all sorts of mistakes. We blew it. <laughs> well, I did. All, all over the place, many, many times. I don't know how big my piece of paper is going to have to be to write on tonight. Yeah. Actually, fortunately, <laughs> my memory is going, so <laughs> I won't be able to write everything down. But I know I made lots of mistakes this year, so I'll have a kind of a blanket. You know, please forgive me, everybody. <laughs> and then also, I will offer forgiveness to those who, you know, rather blew it in relationship to me. And um, so I'll accept, okay, these things happen. 
But that's not all there is to it. It's not just say, well, you know, I just forget everything. No, not at all. But there's also aspiration. That's the second half of the ceremony. But then give thought to, well, you know, clearly not enlightened yet. And, and uh, what do we need to work on? What would help? What would help? If we make an effort. What do I really want to make an effort? What do I really want, basically? That's, that's good to get in touch with. You know, if we take this, this teaching on accepting the way things are as a, a fixed position, well, then we just we can actually not, not notice what's going on in our hearts and in our guts. You know, really, you know, there are things that profoundly matter. There's things that I really want out of life. You know, like, for instance, I'm going to die, and I don't want to die feeling like I missed the boat, feeling like, well, I missed that one, and what a waste of a lifetime. I don't want that to happen. You know, I really want to live a useful life. Well, that's good to get in touch with. That's, that's what aspirations are about. We, 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 we conceptualize, we give thought form to what in our heart of hearts we really care about most. Yeah. Now that's a different aspect of practice. Yeah. So, so when, when the teachers and the teachings talk about accepting the way things are, that's got its place. That's one aspect of practice. But also enthusiasm, zeal, aspiration is another aspect of practice. So it's good to identify these things and to have them in our minds as, so that when daily life situations come up and we have ways of engaging them and contemplating them. Say, all right, yeah, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity where, you know, I don't need any more zeal, thank you very much, you know, like trying to work out a relationship problem. You know, you've fallen out with somebody, misunderstanding, and you really regret it. Maybe you said something or they said something or whatever. And you go back and, and you try and sort it out. And it only makes it worse. And, and they come back to you and say, well, you know, they try and sort it out. And that only makes it worse. And you just say, look, actually, we just got to, you know, accept for, for the time being. We've got to accept this is how it is right now. We're not getting on. It's untidy. And that's been, I find that a really, has been a very significant shift in my own contemplation in the last two years. Where I, after all these years, I'm slowly actually getting the message that samsara is untidy. Now I find it's very difficult with all these planets in Virgo, if you understand a little bit of astrology, it's very, very difficult to accept that samsara is untidy. I've, all these years, for nearly 60 years, I've been trying to make samsara tidy, and it's just not possible. It is untidy, and that is a great realisation. It's certainly helpful to be able to just say, no, this is unsatisfactory. This relationship here is untidy. This misunderstanding is untidy. And to be able to accept it, but that's not complacency. That's not pathetic resignation. That's not being lazy. That's realistic. Because if you keep hammering away at trying to sort out some of life's problems, we make it worse. Ajahn Chah's image was, was uh, he, he said it's like, it's like, you know, you're looking up and you're sticking a stick in, a, in an ant's nest. Now, you probably may not have never seen what this is like, but in the forests in Thailand, the ants build these nests in the trees and these stinging ants, the kind of nasty little red things, they're full of formic acid, I think it is. When they sting, it really hurts. And, and anyway, he says it's like sticking a stick in an ant's nest and says the stinging ants are sticking down, are falling down on you, they're stinging you, and you just keep sticking it, sticking poking out this ant's nest. There's more ants falling down on you and stinging you more, and you just won't stop sticking the ant's nest. He said, why don't you just stop it? Well, that's 
sometimes what's called for. You know, that, and that's that's acceptance of the way things are. This is you know what I'm doing is not not helping. Now, if we don't have an orientation of attention well established inwardly, if we're always going outwardly, we don't see that. We might think that we're helping somebody. You know, like, you know, can't you just listen to me? Can't you just hear what I'm saying? Whereas if we have an orientation of attention well established inwardly, we can see this is based on me trying to get my way. I'm not really trying to help this person at all. What's really helpful in this situation is I just let go and accept, all oh, right, this person's not hearing me. And so it, it equips us, this, 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 this appreciation of practice, accepting the way things are, equips us with, a, with an ability to exercise both wisdom and compassion in our daily life. We can have wise responses and sensitive responses to our situations. One of my favorite uh, instances of, of recent, I don't remember exactly how long ago it was now, recent years, it was um, a story that I read or heard, I'm not sure where, um, of a, um, a building accident in China. And um, as you might expect, the health and safety standards on building sites in China are not like they are in our monastery. With our health and safety officer here, we can barely move without having a hard hat on or gloves on or boots on or whatever. You know, we, We're seriously well protected in this monastery. And in this country, we have, quite rightly, we have these very good standards that we adhere to. Well, it's not always the case in all monasteries. And so when, uh, in this case, on a building site in China, Mr. Wang was his name, apparently. He was told to dig a ditch and um, some foundations presumably were going to be put in there. And so he busy got digging away into the sand. And Now, they didn't put up proper scap, proper uh, reinforcing. And he was digging down, down, down. I think he went down about five metres or something. And sadly, the whole thing caved in on him. And... Um, People standing around saw it, the whole thing. Five metres, he's down there in this hole. Five metres of sand is piled in on top of him. So that's bad news, obviously. Well, they, what are we going to do? The first thing they, they tried, well, let's get the JCB in. Well, you can't get the JCB in because you don't know when you're going to hit Mr. Wang. You know, you've got to be a bit more delicate. You can't use a JCB. So they use shovels, and very carefully they try and they use their hands, and, and they go at it for two hours. They're digging away until... There's Mr. Wang. At least he had a hard hat on. He did have a hard hat on, even though he didn't have proper protection uh, walling up his uh, ditch that he was digging. There's Mr. Wang's head, and next thing you know, he brings his head up, and there he is, breathing, with a smile on his dial. Mr. Wang is just cool as a cucumber. He's, and, of course, nobody can believe it. I mean, the medical people, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. You can't live for two hours without air. Well, it turns out that when they spoke with Mr. Wang, that he was a, um, a qigong expert, or at least mindfulness and breathing expert. And once he realised that five metres of clay or sand or whatever or mud had caved in on him, he had prepared himself with a willingness to accept the way things are and saying, well, this is how it is. He didn't go into panic. He was quite clear about it. He was able to reflect, reflect on it. I could panic right now, use up the oxygen that's here, you see, there was a little oxygen between his hard hat and the mud that was the soil that was around him. Just in the space, there was a little oxygen, just under the rim of his hard hat. And I could panic and use all that oxygen very quickly, or I could just accept this is how it is right now. He certainly wasn't enjoying it. 
He wasn't pleased about having five metres of sand on top of him, but he wasn't fighting it. So, so he was able to rest in an awareness, uh, abide with the understanding of what had happened, and then accord with the conditions of the situation and control his breathing. So he was able to use his training to control his breathing, so his breathing very, very shallow, very little, until two hours later, yes, his friends had dug him out and... And, of course, it was uh, considered by the medical people as a miracle. And in a way, it is a miracle. But it's not necessarily uh, a miracle in the sense of some magic powers. It's just basically this is what right preparation is about. So cultivating contentment is not abdication. If we only listen to part of the teachings and don't listen to all of the teachings, then we can come up with misunderstandings. And I was listening to a Dhamma talk by Ajahn Jai Sara recently where he was talking about a period in the history in Thailand where the government was banning monks from talking about cultivating contentment because it was seen to obstruct the development of capitalism in the country. And so monks will not be teaching contentment anymore. It's not allowed. And they didn't understand the whole practice. The Buddha wasn't just talking about cultivating contentment. He was also talking about you know, resolution, about recognizing the need to, to, to visualize the goal and to strive towards the goal. But cultivating contentment is one of the things we do so as to realize the goal. If we don't have a clear understanding of the goal, if we don't have a clear sense of the goal, a clear concept of the goal, well, we can, be, we can be going around all over the place and heading off in the wrong direction. Like, for instance, if you... Well, I used to think... I used to think the goal of all spiritual life was happiness. When I was... When I first started doing spiritual exercises, when I realised the error of my ways, I was about 19 years old, going on 20, and I thought this path of heedless indulgence is not getting me anywhere. And so I got involved in the local yoga group and... Now, hatha yoga and mantra yoga and 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 macrobiotics and and nice incense and and all sorts of other pleasant things and uh, I was seriously into being spiritual and uh, but my idea of being spiritual was being happy and getting high and I did succeed actually in some ways I got I had some good times but they were quickly followed by some very bad times. <laughs> And I, I didn't know what to do with the bad times. And so getting happy clearly wasn't, the, wasn't a suitable goal. And this is actually not such a terrible mistake. The Buddha did the same thing himself for, for 29 years and, um, until he realized the error of his ways. And then he swung much more extreme to the other way and, and um, got seriously into self-mortification until he realized, well, that wasn't it either, until he stumbled across the actual middle way of clear seeing. And so realizing or appreciating, thankfully, if we get the teachings from somebody like the Buddha, that the goal, a right goal, a suitable goal, is not being happy, is not having psychic powers, is not being able to read the future, but it's about seeing clearly, which is why it's the first of the eight factors of the Eightfold Path, clear seeing or, or right view. And so if we have the sense of the goal, it's that, Reality is always like this. Before the Buddha was enlightened and after the Buddha was enlightened, the external reality hadn't changed a bit. 
for that bakuni before she was enlightened and after, <clears throat> and after she was enlightened, the external reality hadn't changed a bit. What had changed was her relationship to her experience of reality. So if we can appreciate that, that the goal is to be free from those obstructions to reality. Reality is just so. It's always like this. The body's always like this. The carpet's always green. You get enlightened, doesn't mean the carpet stops looking green. You get enlightened, doesn't mean to say Northumberland's weather is going to suddenly become agreeable. It doesn't mean to say we're not going to run out of gas on a regular basis. We're still going to run out of gas. We're still going to have to ring up. You know, if the gas master in the monastery was enlightened, which he's not, but if he did, was enlightened and we ran out of gas, he would still have to ring up the... Who is it we're talking to? Flow gas. Still have to ring up flow gas and ask him for some more gas, please. The external experience doesn't change, but the way we relate to it changes. And so that's when we have to start talking about contentment. It doesn't matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter what your position is in life. As a parent... You know, it's like those of you that are brought up or bringing up children. You know, children have a natural speed for growing. You know, the four or five, you know, oh, God, I wish they were seven, or we could start having an intelligent conversation. And then the seven, you start having conversations, you think, oh, actually, it was quite nice when they were two. <laughs> and anyway, now the seven, and they say, well, it'd be nice when he's actually grown up and earning his own living. And well, then he's 17, he's grown up, and he's really telling you to his face what he thinks of you the job you did on in your upbringing and so on. I think, well, it would be really nice when they... You know, whereas if there's a sense, well, okay, children grow up naturally, and there's a sense, well, this is what a child's like when they're two. You talk to other parents, they say, listen, okay, they're always like that when they're two. They're always like that when they're seven. And so with that encouragement, you can accept it as it is. Or if you're the abbot of a monastery, you can always wish things were otherwise. Believe me, it's very, very easy, and I, I've got a... The right brain in my head works much better than the left brain. I have a very good capacity for fantasizing about how things could be otherwise. And I'm not that different from others. I know there's a, there's a teaching story that goes around these days of when Ajahn Sumato was a young abbot in Watnana Chart, and he, um, he was making a, uh, a bowl stand. You'll notice the, the bowl stands we set our bowls on. And uh, at least in Thailand, we used to make these ourselves. You spent hours and hours whittling every little piece of wood, getting it down the thick on the outside and thin on the inside, and, and then shellacking them and getting them nice and smooth, and then, then uh, having them all ready, and then the weaving them all together. And, and uh, it's a very nice exercise to do. And anyway, Ajahn Sumedha was building his own bowl stand. He was very keen to get it finished in time because the rains retreat was coming up, and during the rains retreat there was no... Uh, distracting oneself with these fun projects. And so he's very keen to do it. But he was the abbot of a new monastery, what none a chart, and it was getting well known. There's endless people coming into the monastery all the time. And so he was getting endlessly interrupted and he was getting frustrated. He wanted to finish his bowl stand. He really wanted to finish his bowl stand. And he was just getting uptight and resentful to these generous, lovely lay people who were coming to offer all sorts of mangoes and whatever else. He was just feeling resentful and irritated about it until he saw what he was doing. So actually, that's not, that's not very helpful, not very suitable. Because he was inwardly oriented and could see his attachment to me getting my way, I want to get this bowl stand finished for whatever reason. I mean, once you get the bowl stand finished, that momentum of me and my way is still going to be there and it'll be transferred to something else and I want to get my way again. Yeah. But when we're caught up in it, we don't see that. We don't see that it's no ending. 
It's just samsara going on and on and on. We don't see that. We think that somehow we're going to be satisfied when we get what we want. All we get is, as Krishnamurti used to say, you get momentary gratification. And the difference between gratification and satisfaction are profoundly different. Gratification of desires is a momentary freedom from the pain of the itch, where satisfaction is where you actually no longer have to scratch anymore. You've risen above it. So Ajahn Sumedho hadn't risen above it at that point. He was still scratching his itch and wanting to get his bowl stand finished until he saw it. And so then what he did was actually put his unfinished bowl stand right by his shrine. And so every time he bowed to his shrine, he was reminded, saying, it's unfinished, and this is the way it is. It's untidy, and this is the way it is. And so this acceptance of the way it is, is what it's doing is actually unplugging from the momentum of always becoming, always wanting something more, always wanting to be something else, somebody else, to have things otherwise. And how can we investigate, how can we really contemplate with clarity? There's no clear seeing when we're caught up in the momentum of always wanting to be somewhere else. So if we're always caught up in the aspirations for our being otherwise, like we're going to, tonight we're going to have forgiveness and aspirations. We're always caught up in our aspirations. I should be otherwise. I definitely should be otherwise. I should have much more wisdom, much more understanding, much more patience, much more kindness, much more of everything, quite frankly. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and at midnight tonight, I'm going to really be saying, I want to work on these things. But if we're always caught up in that, does that accord a clear seeing? Not really. But it's got a place, aspirations. It's got a place. And if we're always, or if we're always caught up in acceptance of the way things are, I say, well, you know, whatever. I don't know if you saw that article on the news recently where Google have produced this new little mechanism whereby you can search for, for the most used words and over the last few decades or whatever. And anyway, there was also this article... That, was, that did a, a, a research on the, the most loathed words in America. They surveyed, uh, I don't know how many people, the most loathed words or expressions in America. And top of the list was whatever. So apparently Americans really don't like whatever anymore. Now that's wisdom. That whatever is no longer cool. Because if you get caught up in whatever all the time, that's complacency. That's not, but if we don't know how to let go and accept the way things are, well, then that's not it either. So as we um, now approach the new year, we have um, three hours and nearly 15, 16 minutes to go before 2011 is with us. I'd like to encourage us all to spend some time perhaps contemplating the forgiveness, the acceptance of the way things are, our own limitations and the limitations of others. Remembering this is not a resignation. By even if somebody did do something really terrible to you, really, really hurt you, or you did something really terrible and you, 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 you have tremendous remorse, the pain of remorse is just so. Acceptance of the pain it's not saying we like it. It's just not fighting it. Okay, I'm sure Mr. Wang was disappointed when he was down that five-meter hole. Yeah. But he didn't fight it. He wasn't angry about it. So if we've made mistakes, we, you know, forgiveness, forgiveness is 
no longer investing ill will in the memory of the pain. So acceptance is not resignation, and aspiration is not getting caught up in restlessness. Maybe if we contemplate these two aspects of teachings tonight as we go forward to the new year. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayang Dhamma Varakata Sadhu Karang Dhamma Seng